Well, good morning. Good morning. Everybody awake? No, <laughs> got some nose coming from this side of the building over here. Good night or good morning. We'll turn to Exodus chapter 27. I'm going to read to you in just a second what you might think is one of the most boring elements of all of Scripture. So if you're trying to figure out what's the most boring passage you could possibly read from in the Bible, I'm going to give you one that you might think, okay, that's it. I think you just found it. And it's going to be the centerpiece of what we're talking about today. All right, let's just suppose you just wanted to do something curious this week. And everybody that you ran into this week at work, at Winn-Dixie, wherever, you just decided to ask them, hey, tell me something about the tabernacle. Right, just for, you know, a conversation starter, just wherever you are, standing in line somewhere. Hey, what do you know about the tabernacle? How much detail do you think you'd hear from people? You think they'd say, I mean, you had a lot of people that just tell you, tabernacle, what, what the heck are you talking about? Even if you talk to a Christian, if you turn to the person next to you right now and said, hey man, real quickly, tell me everything you know about the tabernacle. It, it could be a short conversation, couldn't it? Right? All right, well, hopefully as we spend a little bit of time in the tabernacle, we're not going to overdo the details of it, but we cannot miss the significance of this revelation from God because it's not just a closet item for the people of God from a long time ago that doesn't really matter anymore the tabernacle continues into eternity so there's dimensions here that we're going to learn about that are relevant if you're going to exist around God forever this is relevant and it's very educational in ways that we need to see it all right so let's Let's bore down into some details here. If you're in Exodus 27, you know, when we got to Exodus 25, there is the rest of the book of Exodus, with a couple of chapters of exception, is about the tabernacle. And it's got a lot of details in it that you and I might read past and say, uh, probably don't need to know that. Let's read some of that, probably don't need to know that stuff right here. Exodus 27 verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Right, a cubit's about a foot and a half, just in case you're wondering how big this is. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side... There shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty, of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court, on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, then with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits." The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. 
It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Let's pray together. Father, these are words you saw fit to preserve for us. We are always captured in curiosity by what is not preserved in your word. Many things took place. Many things were spoken. And we don't have a record of them. But here, we have a record, a specific detailed record. Because there's something here for us to see. And there's an impact for us to experience on our lives. Because your word carries that kind of weight. So Lord, we invite you to help us to have our eyes wide open to encounter you in ever-deepening ways. God, give us eyes to see you in this tabernacle. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite quotes that many of you, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me quote this quote. I haven't quoted it in a while, but it's from a pastor who most of his ministry was in the 1950s and 1960s, a man named A.W. Tozer. And he said this thought, and the first time I ever read it, I thought, this is, this is too good not to remember. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now think with me for a second about that. Nothing, nothing is defining our lives, shaping our lives, impacting how we feel about our lives, like our understanding of whoever God is and whatever he is like. Right? This, this to me is the eclipsing issue of all of our existence. And so for me, if you're looking for a philosophy of life, I'm going to wake up in the morning, I'm going to do life this week, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to do life. I can't think of anything that's more important to whatever that philosophy is going to be then who is God and what is he like? I can't think of anything more important in my life when I get up to face the day-to-day routines, the needs that are in my life, situations that come to me, how I feel on any given day. I can't think of anything more important than who is God and what is he like? I can't think of anything more important when I preach than bringing us to a greater awareness and conclusion of who is God and what is he like. This to me is what it means to be God-centered. And I think the universe was created to be God-centered and you and I are created to be God-centered and our thinking is supposed to be God-centered. And so you won't find me preaching very many messages where the thing that I want to arrive at more than anything else, doesn't mean I don't have other agendas, but the thing I want to arrive at more than anything else is a clearer view of who is God. And so if I were to ask you 
what do you believe God is like? What kind of words come to mind for you that tell you, well, what's, what's God like? Or you'd have some descriptives, some words right now, hopefully, if you're thinking with me, some words are popping in your head. What's God like? And you're going to tell me what he's like. And you'd say, what? And I'd say, where'd you get those ideas from? Why do you think God is like whatever you think he's like? What's the source of some of that thought? Well, my question, the title of the message today is, when it comes to thinking accurately about God... Have you been taught by the tabernacle or have you been trained by an age of tolerance? Have you been taught about God by this tabernacle that we're reading about? Or have you been trained in your view of God by an age of tolerance? Right, the word tolerance... Um, this concept of making room for all kinds of things, just tolerating whatever position somebody else holds, whatever views other people have. Tolerance, along with personal preference, personal opinion, personal beliefs, personal viewpoints, these concepts have gotten a severe upgrade in the last couple of decades. They have gone from one place of status in our thinking 20 years ago to a whole new level of appreciation and importance to us. Now, in case someone thinks, you know, if you're a younger person here, in case you think your generation invented the word toleration, you didn't. There's always been aspects of toleration in our culture, in humanity, in people looking and viewing other people's positions and views. But be careful because it's not been held and forwarded the same way you're experiencing it being forwarded today. Today, personal viewpoint rules. It rules the day. Personal opinion, what you think is true, what you have strong convictions about, Now, what happens is if that's going to be made to be true, you're going to have viewpoints that need to be validated and appreciated and even applauded by others. If that's going to be your position, well, then you've got to install a high quality of toleration. Because if I've got strong feelings about something and I've got strong beliefs about something, I don't want anybody telling me I'm wrong. I want you to validate what I believe. And if I'm going to do that, you need to have a high value for toleration. And so these things didn't get installed by accident. They go together. And there's a reason why our culture has shifted. And by the way, you older people here recognize this, right? Our culture has shifted in this category, has it not? Right? My dad was born in 1918. His generation did toleration. His generation had personal viewpoints. They held things passionately. His generation was the generation that went off to fight World War II. Hundreds of thousands, millions fought, hundreds of thousands died because they saw a cause that was greater than themselves. And so their viewpoint had a place in society. It sat here and bigger needs sat above it. Societal needs sat above it. And people were willing to lay down their lives 
and spend the last moment of their life in a foxhole being killed or blown up for the sake of something that they saw better and more important than their own particular personal dimension. Right? Even as late as 1963, you have the President of the United States standing up and saying something that would make no sense today. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Right? That was a, a proclamation of values. You as an individual, find your place amidst something that's bigger than you. Right? There's been a shift in the last 20 years. Everybody else now must submit to you as an individual. Your viewpoint is valid. Your viewpoint should be taught, considered, entertained as right. Room must be made for it. And to not do that is intolerance. And that's what our culture feels like today. And my great concern is that feels more and more normal. And the more I stand up in this pulpit and say things as though they're absolutely a position that's absolute, I guarantee the the less and less many people want to be in this building on a Sunday morning. Because that feels like there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that dude. Listen, my dad wouldn't get you, millennials. And, and this is concerning from the standpoint of, you know, we are a, a society and a people and a culture that it's the Johnny-come-lately idea that must be right. It's got to be right. It's new. It's got to be right. Ain't nothing new under the sun. This stuff is just repackaged old ideas brought with a new coat of paint on it. And if you don't treat it that way, you're going to fall prey to something. Oh, that sounds, wow, that sounds, that sounds like something I ought to be listening to. Why? Because it's new? You do realize the things that God has to say are the oldest things in the world. So they'll be the first to go, won't they? If you fall in love with everything new, then this will be the first thing you'll jettison. You'll read every blog, you'll be in tune with every news idea, you're, you're up to date with every opinion that flies around, but this, you haven't read this in forever, right? It's an interesting article I came across this week called The Postmodern Challenge. Jim LaFell and Dennis McCollum say, intolerant, a word that has come to have a whole new meaning in recent years. Intolerance used to refer to bigotry or prejudice. That is, attacking people or excluding them because of who they are or what they think. In that sense, intolerance is offensive. But now, intolerance often means simply asserting some beliefs are true and others are false. Isn't that how it feels today? If you simply take a position that doesn't let other positions be equally valid, you're intolerant and you'll be labeled that way and you'll be treated that way. They say this is one of the defining sentiments of our day. Attempting to convert people is unacceptable because it implies standing in judgment over their truth, their truth. They've got a position. And anytime you come to somebody for the sake of converting them, which when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, you understand the backhand of that was teach them to stop believing whatever it is that they're believing now. 
And in place of that, teach them to believe the gospel. So the gospel automatically is an intolerant thing. And it will be treated that way. And you may notice that it's being treated that way. They say America today is a religious smorgasbord. The only question seems to be, for what are you hungry? And taste is more important than substance. While we hear the rhetoric of openness to everything and tolerance for everyone, we rarely find anyone who really understands what this means. Relativism is just the socially appropriate attitude of the hour. It is just what feels like you ought to be feeling like. And you ought to sound that way. And if you take too rigid of a position, if you become a little bit too specifically defined, people are going to back away from you like you've got some kind of a disease. You've got like a thought disease. And I can't get around that. Because you don't sound like you're tolerating other people. But just remember with me, toleration got an upgrade in the last 20 years that it never had before. So I don't even have to preach from the Bible. I can just preach from humanity. If we're all willing to say that in the last 20 to 30 years, finally, finally humanity figured out how to get this right. Really? Everybody else has been wrong in every generation before this. But more importantly, does that sound like the way the Bible sounds? Like the Bible is trying to accommodate and validate every idea that's out there. Do you get that feel when you read the Bible? Okay, when you stare at this tabernacle today, I can guarantee you, you're not going to get that feel. Great book that I read a while back. Mark Sayers wrote a book called Disappearing Church. Very helpful if you're ever curious about our culture and the church world. He says, New York Times columnist David Brooks senses this post-Christian individualist theology in the wisdom and advice given to university students. These are actual quotes. If you sample, he says, some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told to, quote, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams and find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism. And you're reading those and you're saying, yeah, I think I've heard that in a few of these speeches. And part of you, if you're younger especially, is saying, what's wrong with that? And it almost is said with a chip on the shoulder, right? So like, go out there and march to the beat of your own. Don't listen to what everybody else tells you what to do. Don't let them define you. That's what it feels like, Right? You do, you fulfill your dream. Anybody smart enough to recognize that when an individual starts to fulfill his dream, it's got fallout? There will be casualties? Because what if, what if your wife doesn't fit in your dream anymore? What if your children don't fit in your dream? Because, you know, you need to go You need to go fulfill your dream. You need to march to the beat of your own drummer. Well, what if your husband marches to a different beat than your drummer plays? What do you do? You get rid of him and his drummer. (laughs) Go tell him to start his own band. I got my own thing going on here. 
Listen, this is happening everywhere in our culture because our culture, sorry, is dumb enough to think individualism can survive by closing its eyes to the people around you. But we're not just individuals, are we? We're a community of people. We're families. We're tied to other people. And most importantly, we are living a life defined by a creator. So the idea of don't, Im- don't impose your ideas on me. You understand when that gets in you, it's a small shift from don't you impose your ideas on me to don't you impose your ideas on me. It's a small shift. Because it's in you and it feels right. And everybody ought to respect your space. Because that's what's valid, right? He says, sadly, such advice can be found not only in secular college commencement speech, but also in many churches. He says, we have failed to notice that a new power has seized control of both our imaginations and the halls of power. This new power swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. Meditate on these because this may be in your blood and in your thinking. And I think it is. Listen to these set of beliefs in our day. One, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That is the highest good. See, once you install that as the highest good, then you have to tolerate that person's pursuit of that because to not tolerate it means to tear down their highest good and to be against them and to harm them and you are an unloving person because you are not supporting that person's highest good. This is how this plays out. Two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. You just emptied the church with that one. Oh, which by the way, the church is struggling to reach millennials. All over, struggling to reach millennials. And I think it's because this attitude feels right. Right, number two, it says traditions, religions, received wisdom, right? It's somebody who went on before you now passing on their ideas to you. And there's a generation that says, well, this has always been true of generations, right? This is not a new thing, but it's, it's become a little bit more true than it has in the past. Don't pass on your ideas to us. We want to find our own ideas. We want to, we want to figure our own way out. And you know, you know, to some degree, that's not a problem, right? In some categories, that shouldn't be told. People shouldn't be told that they're wrong for having that viewpoint in some categories. I mean, I don't think everybody needed to wear the same polyester that was being worn in the 70s. I'm sorry. You just, no one should be inflicted with that in future generations. It's probably coming back now, I imagine. But there are some things that are not up for debate, The Bible calls us to return to the ancient paths. The ideas of God that define what human life is about, they're not going to be discovered today. They were revealed a long time ago. They're already out there. So if your generation says, hey, hey, church, 
institutional church. Don't try and pass your ideas on to us. Well, before you tell the institutional church that, can you just make sure whether those ideas are God's ideas or not? Because if they are, you need to humbly just receive them the way God installed that you would. Because the Bible is written to a people who would recognize one generation would commend your works to the next. That's from the Bible. So we never should have this idea that don't you speak to me. You let me chart my own path and find my own way. Oh man, what have you been smoking? You didn't roll the Bible up and smoked it, I can tell you that. Number four, he says, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. I always love when I see that. The one thing you're not supposed to tolerate is intoleration. Number five, humans are inherently good. Listen, this one has been slipping into the the water supply for quite a while. You, you do understand this. I mean, this, this should leap out at you. If you're a person sitting here today saying, well, what's wrong with that? I think, I think humans are inherently good. Can I tell you this Bible is very confusing to everybody who reads it then? Because it's seeking to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. What a big waste of print. All these years, all these ideas. If humans are inherently good, this book is wrong. And it's trying to solve a problem that no one has. And by the way, that's how the Bible is being treated today, right? Because people are more convinced that people are inherently good than they are convinced about whatever this tabernacle thing is. The tabernacle doesn't sound like people are inherently good. You'll see that in just a second. For millions across the West, these beliefs provide the dominant framework for navigating life. And they are also providing the dominant framework for defining. So what do you think God is like? I think God is love. And I think God is tolerant. And I can't imagine a God who would do whatever you just described he was does. Right? This is what life feels like today, right? Because that viewpoint, that cultural theology is so in people that they bring it to their view of God. And they answer your question with, what is God like? And so my question is, have you been trained by tolerance or have you been taught by the tabernacle about what God is like? You pick this Bible up, a massive portion of this Bible is dedicated to that thing right there. As a matter of fact, it is the most dominant revelation about God and humanity in the Bible, and it only gives way to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Nothing else rivals it in explaining to us who God is and who we are in relation to him. So it's a very, very, very important thing. And when you pull up into this setting and you look at the way it's designed and it's created, you come in contact with something, right? Before we even got to Exodus 25, we pulled up to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and in Exodus 20, we received the law of God, right? Remember that? God revealed the 10 commandments. For most people, they know more about the 10 commandments than they do about this. 
But my view, this might be just my opinion, but I think others would agree. You get the Ten Commandments because you're about to get this. You get God saying there's a way to do life and this is why that way of doing life matters. I'm about to move in with you guys and be your roommate. And I am a certain way. And the way you guys are doing life and me living among you, that's not going to work. So here's the Ten Commandments to tell you how to live life because I'm going to be living with you guys. I'm moving in with you. And God wants to dwell among us. But what is the dwelling place of God like? Well, that would have a lot to do with what you think God is like, right? If you've conceived of God being a certain way, then you think his dwelling place will be a certain way. What is the dwelling place of God like? Just keep this in mind. I won't go back through this again. But you've actually got three revelations. You could say four revelations of the tabernacle in the Bible. Right? You've got this one we're getting here at Mount Sinai. But Moses goes up into heaven and sees another tabernacle that he's replicating upon the earth. So there's another one there. And that one gets picked up in just a moment. We'll see it way over here in Revelation. We'll see something there. And then there's this new tabernacle that comes in the new covenant. When God makes a new covenant and he dwells differently among his people. It's his dwelling place. So the tabernacle has to do with how does the God of the universe dwell among his creation? And that setting has character to it. It is a certain way because God is a certain way. Right? So let's fast forward. I put in your outline there. Revelation 21. Let's just visit this passage for a second because it will help us understand this first revelation of this tabernacle is after a pattern that is in heaven. Revelation 21 verse 2. The Apostle John is writing this. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, that's the whole focal point of the tabernacle. God is going to dwell with his people. Right, so if you want to understand this tent thing in the wilderness, you have to understand the God of the universe wants to dwell amongst human beings. That's what he's up to. And the Apostle John is given a vision of a new Jerusalem. Listen carefully. These are not details to miss when you read your Bible. Being lowered down from heaven. Where does this dwelling place of God get its origin from? From God. It is not the construction of man and his ideas. It is not man coming to God and saying, God, I think you're like this. And I think you're like this. And I think you're like this. And I think you and I can have a relationship based on these issues. Hey, you can do that all you want. But that is not the God of the Bible. You'd just be like every other person, every other Greek person, every other mythological character. You will be creating a God out of your own ideas. The God in the Bible 
He lowers a dwelling place out of heaven that he made. He defined its parameters. He said it what, what, what it would be like. And it doesn't feel like a tolerant place. Whether I like that or not. Verse 4. In Revelation 2 it says. 21 it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what this place is going to be like. This dwelling of God. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You you stop and think for a moment. Do you know why that setting is not going to have things like mourning and crying and pain in it? Well, one of the reasons, I don't know if you've thought about this, but one of the reasons is because ain't nobody going to be there marching to the beat of their own drum. You know where a lot of crying and pain comes from? When somebody in your life who was supposed to be close enough to you to be trusted, to be loyal, that you were vulnerable to, decided randomly for their own reason and their own dream to march to the beat of their own drum at your expense. And suddenly you were filled with pain and crying. You know one of the reasons why this heavenly dwelling place of God won't have any pain and crying in it because there'll be no reason to cry and there'll be no cause of pain in it because selfishness won't be there. Does that make it sound like God's tolerant of selfishness or not? Because he's creating a place where there'll be none of it. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, these are not tolerant words, are they? As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 25 says, and its gates, right, this dwelling place of God, its gates will never be shut. You're going to see in the tabernacle in just a second, not the case in the earthly tabernacle. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Ever. Nothing unclean. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only. These are, these are exclusive words. These are intolerant words. Only. Only. No one. And I get this. I highlight words like that. You want me to read past those words quickly in the Bible. But they're there. And they scream. And I'm trying to wake up on Monday morning and live a life based on who God is. Not what I'd like him to be. But who he really is. This is who he really is. And listen, it might freak me out. I'm, I'm, I'm not a millennial. So I don't have to sort through quite some of the same stuff. But I've had my own stuff I had to sort through in my generation. 
But these ideas are out there and they seep into your bloodstream. And next thing you know, you think like them and you read words like this and they make you go, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. Wait, wait, wait. How about you just shift that thought? I don't know if you can trust your generation. Maybe your generation is so off track and it's going to seek to redefine God. Just remember, when you read this Bible, this dwelling place, this dwelling place is not man's invention. It is a pattern that Moses observed in heaven and he brought it to earth and replicated it. He didn't say, hey, I got some cool ideas. Hey, God, you want to hang out with us? I got some cool ideas, man. Why don't you come hang with us? You know, we'll design this. We'll build that. You'll hang with us on Monday. We'll do this. Tuesday will be like this. This will be great, God. You understand that's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a revelation of what God said he would dwell in. So this is a sobering question. You want to dwell with God or not? Because your heart cries out and longs for the living God. But if you're going to come to him, you're going to come on his terms. You're going to come the way he said come. You don't get to reinvent this. So what we're going to read about here and, and look at in this tabernacle. And you know, I was really hoping. Uh, you can see there. We've got this big curtain thing going on outside. You've, you've got the, the altar. The brazen altar and the labor that Peter talked about uh, last week. And then you move into what's actually called the tabernacles inside this. This is a cutout image. So in there is two chambers. One of them is the holy place. The other place is the most holy. I was really hoping just to get us into the holy place here. But you know what I couldn't escape in looking at this and looking at the detail of design? I couldn't escape all the tents and veils all over the place. I couldn't escape it. You should not let yourself escape it. It tells you something about God. I look at this thing, it gets set up in the wilderness for the people of God, and I see separation everywhere in it. There is a separation between God and man, and it's featured everywhere. The first thing you would have seen from a distance as you approach this thing is that seven and a half foot white tent around it that won't let you see much of anything inside of it. That's the first thing you would have noticed. This was not like a open sushi bar on the beach. Just, hey, walk up, whatever. Hey, man, give me one of those. You know, no, 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 no. You, you didn't do that with this because it featured some things here. And remember, God didn't stumble upon a tabernacle design book in heaven and say, ooh, I guess this is how you're supposed to build this. None of these ideas exist until God creates them. So you're wondering why there's tents and veils all over the place? God invented them. You want to know why there's a, a brazen altar that Peter t- shared about? God said put that there. You want to know why there's a laver there for washings and cleansing? God said put it there. Every one of these things is an intentional communication from God. And it tells us something about him, doesn't it? God didn't inherit this idea. Right, quick facts, just so you can get a lay of the land there. The passage we just read gives you the dimensions of the tabernacle and outer court. Right, so you've got length and breadth and height and all that's going to be given. It's like 75 feet across, 150 feet deep is the outer court area. It's got a seven and a half foot curtain all the way around it that are set up on posts in a particular way after a particular fashion. There's one way into this thing. Go back to that other image. There's one way into this thing down here at the end there. 
Then over, look, look at Exodus 26 real quickly. Exodus 26 verse 1. You can go to that other image now. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen. All right, so now we're, we're into the box inside. We're into this smaller piece, not the outside curtain. Purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. All right, so you have this... This curtain here in the front that the high priest or the priest is standing out in front of that curtain right there. That veil was the first veil that you would encounter. So if you want to approach God, God's going to manifest his presence on the earth uniquely. And he's going to do that behind the second veil. So you've got one veil separating you from one chamber. And you move into that chamber there. And this entire box there, you get some details of how big is this thing, right? So the whole tabernacle, this whole dimensions here, it's like 45 feet deep, 15 feet across. The first section, the holy place, is 30 feet deep. The last section is 15 feet deep. Now that's a curious dimension, only when you read later in the Bible. Because that last little section there is 15 feet deep, it's 15 feet across, and it's 15 feet high. So it's this cube. Now what's interesting here is the passage we just read in Revelation 21 says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then later in verse 16 it says, The city lies four square. Its length and width and height are equal. This, this is following something that already exists in heaven. Right, what's most critical about that is not that you get all the typology. Well, that is, that's pretty critical too. But that you recognize this is not man's invention. This is God saying, you want to dwell with me? This is how you do it. This is an invitation. And, and as Peter preached last week, this is the passion of God. His passion. His passion is to be with us. But if there's any being who said, hey, I want to be with you. I want to be with you so bad. Let's just blow off all the details and just make it happen. You don't think God could do that? Because his passion is to be with us. In all of eternity, his passion is to be with us. But all these details come with that. Then in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 We get told about that last veil. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Right, so you've got another veil that's cutting people off from the presence of God. Right, so do you see how many layers you've got here before you even get near to God? God put those in place. Right, put up, pull up that encampment element. All right, this is kind of generally what they look like. They encamped around this tabernacle. So you get the tabernacle, they'd move and they'd all march and move and then they'd set up this tabernacle and all the tribes would encamp around it. They all had parking spaces. They all had to go to a particular place, north, south, east, and west. And they set up their lives around the tabernacle, right? So what I love about that imagery there is these are people that are going to be doing life. They're they're going to be 
planting things and uh, eating things and hunting things and developing skills and working crafts and having families. They're going to be doing all the, they're going to do life. But at the center of their doing life was going to be the tabernacle. And that's, that's something that gets fumbled a lot by us. Like somehow it's, it's either you either serve God or you serve your own dream. That, that was never God's t- plan. He was to be in the midst of all that we did. He was to be the centerpiece of all that we did. But I, I want you to notice these separation elements, right? So if this is how they camped, there, there is one that's implied here that's not clearly spelled out here, but it is implied and is clearly implied. God takes one nation, an exclusive one nation, brings them to himself at Mount Sinai and delivers to them this plan for the tabernacle. He doesn't then turn around and say, hey, I'm giving this one to you guys, but I got a whole other set of plans that I'm going to be giving these plans out to the Egyptians next and to the Philistines after that and to all the nations in Canaan. They all get their own plans. They're going to all build tabernacles. I'm going to be with everybody. You do recognize that God doesn't do this to any one else but his chosen people no one gets told God will dwell with them in the earth except his chosen people that seems unfair how many of y'all think that's unfair single people out that is in the bible right did I make that up You do recognize that there's no other nation given this. Because that's how God is. And before I want to go correct him on that, I want to recognize the God I'm talking about is perfect and he does everything perfectly. And I am not. And so before I critique him and say, that ain't right. If you're going to give that to the Israelites, you've got to give it to the Egyptians too and the Philistines and whoever else is out there. Well, apparently not. So then you have this Israelite section, right? Only the nation of Israel centered around the tabernacle. There's another section that is part of this tabernacle setup. And then go to that next image. Then you have the outer court of the tabernacle, the, the tented off area. This would be the outer court dimension where only certain people could come into this outer court, right? So you see, there is this opening here and folks are coming through and they're going to bring their sacrifices that Peter talked about. But, but notice something here that the tabernacle teaches us clearly. How many openings are there in the outer court to get you into the sacrificial system God created? One. Why not put one on all Sides. Why not four? Why not add a few to this? Might it be that God in the tabernacle is trying to teach us something so that when he does something later on, it won't freak us out? That when Jesus says this in John chapter 14, it won't freak everybody out because they were taught by the tabernacle. They weren't taught by tolerance. They were taught by the tabernacle. John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Do you get the feel that God wants to dwell with us? I want you to be where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, you say that today and you are almost guaranteed to lose your audience. That sounds ridiculous in an age of tolerance. There's got to be other ways. There's just got to be. You were taught that by the tabernacle? Listen, there's nothing taking up more room in the Bible than this. But like I said, most people don't know anything about the tabernacle. They know a lot about tolerance. They don't know anything about the tabernacle. The tabernacle had one way into it because God kept trying to teach his people there's only one way to get to me. Jesus would say this in more than one place. John 10 verse 7 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The, Jesus was described as the door, the way in. Like there was only one way in. Nobody crawled under the tent, climbed over, cut a hole, came in their own way because they had an idea about how God should have done this. They came through the one opening that was available to them to come or they didn't come at all. Then there's this entire priest section. You could come into that outer court there, but you couldn't get past that first blue veil. Only the priest could get in there. And then even more narrow, that second veil... Only the high priest could go behind that veil once a year, only. God said all this stuff. Does it mean anything to you? That there's these layers of separation and that there's these things that capture our attention that nobody just casually just walks up on God, the man upstairs. He is veiled. He is separate from us. And there's this tribe with a group within the tribe who gets to go in that first veil. And they're the only ones who get to go in that first veil. How do you feel about that? How many of y'all love the doctrine of election? You should. You should love it. And if you haven't been here long enough to learn to love it, I hope you'll stay around a while. But see, the do- this is why we don't like the doctrine of election. Because we don't like the idea that God gets to choose the way the universe is going to be. We don't like that idea. We're from America, doggone it. This should be voted on. But you know, God comes along and says, only the priests can come behind that second veil. 
And only the high priest once a year can come behind that third one. This is what God says. So here's what's what's clear, whether we love this or not, what's clear from the tabernacle. If I've been taught by the tabernacle, I think I wrote this out in your outline. There is a strong and clear communication of separation in the tabernacle. The concept that God and the near presence of God are not accessible to man in his current condition. That's what the tabernacle screams out at humanity. That's what it seeks to teach us. And if you ignore this, if you try and find a shortcut to the presence of God, there's lots of people who want to get around God. They want to have a relationship with the spiritual dimension of life. They want that. And they want a shortcut. And in today's age, you can't go this long way. That sounds ridiculous. But can I just tell you, if, if you invent a shortcut around these things, then I, I promise you, you really don't understand anything about the grace of God. You have sucked all the meaning out of that. You've got very little to sing about. You're not amazed by much at all. Because your God doesn't have any curtains around him. There's no veils. Anybody who just wants to come can just come. This idea of being separated from God. Where do we get this kind of, what kind of God are you talking about? The God of the tabernacle. The God who revealed himself this way. Here's a passage that you just don't get. If you don't get the tabernacle, you don't, you don't get this passage. And it's really, it's, it's a terrible passage to miss. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Jesus is on the cross. He is committing the greatest act in human history. The most needed thing that's ever going to be done for humanity. He is doing it on that cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit. This is the moment in which Jesus Christ dies. No waste of ink. Matthew next verse says. And behold. The veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. How many times have you read that verse. And it didn't mean enough to you. Do you want to know why it doesn't mean anything to you? Because you got a God with no veils. You live in a land that doesn't believe God would be separated from anything. God's not that way. Oh, yes, he is that way. And I love this. What a, what a revelation this is. This is God's word, right? Of all the things that can be said, Jesus has just paid the penalty for our sin. He has just done that. First order of celebration in the inspired word of God is the barrier is removed. You now can come to me. This is what God celebrates immediately. You see why the tabernacle is such a massively important thing? It is revealing the passion of our God to dwell with us. When he deals with the barrier of sin, the first order of business is celebrate that the veil is torn down and you have access into my presence. And listen to how Hebrews talks about this access. Verse 10, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new 
and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, if your God doesn't have any veils around him, there's no separation between man and God, you don't get the language of the Bible, do you? This sounds like, what the heck were you writing about? What do you mean the veil was torn? There aren't any veils. God is just loving. God just loves everybody. There's no separation. What are you talking about? See, the Bible makes all kinds of noise, jumps up and down, screams and celebrates things that you stare at that and go, non-event. Didn't matter. That didn't need to happen. I get why you don't want to read this. Because it sounds like it's off target. This, did you hear the tone of this book? It celebrates that veil being removed because that veil is really there. God is not like anything else you and I have ever known. That God who creates a city that gets lowered for his dwelling place where there's no tears and no pain and none of us idiots causing that kind of pain in that place. God has created a setting that's pure and holy. A setting not like us. And if that feels exclusive... And if you feel excluded, can I just tell you, you will truly never come to Christ until you feel excluded. Because to come to Christ means to give up all hope and all innate ability that you can fix what's wrong between you and God. You have to give that up. You have to embrace the thought that this God is too pure and holy for me to ever be around. That's, I can't close the distance. I can't make the veil go away. But there is one who did on my behalf. And when he dies, isn't it interesting of all the stuff going on in that moment, the first thing the Bible wants to say is the veil is gone. And you can now come to him. And then the encouragement later is, you know, why would you have to tell people with full assurance draw near? Well, because people died when they drew near to God. That's why you might have to tell them, it's, it's safe now. You can go ahead and get near God. It's, it's okay. Because the, the presence of God killed people. Is that... I I say some of this stuff and I'm thinking, if you're here for the first time, you're thinking, this guy is a loon. (laughs) Right? It's like, come on, God, he's he's, he's loving, he's a basset hound. I mean, you just come to him, he licks you. I mean, what are you talking about? Well, you know, listen, if you don't, you know, this is in the Bible. This, This is what the Bible says. And you know, if you went behind that second veil in an unworthy manner, you got dragged out dead. Because that's what the nature of God is like. 
He's, he's not like us. It's amazing that we get to be near him. Robert Deffenbaugh wrote an article. He says, the tent curtains, and especially the thick veil, served as a separator, a dividing barrier between God and the people. Beyond this, the tabernacle was sanctified and set apart as a holy place. This spared the people from an outbreak from God, which would have destroyed them. How many people are thinking about God that way? Right, nobody freaks out when you drive by. There's a certain place you can drive by in the city. I think there's like this big place on Cleary. If you're driving down Cleary, you'll see this massive bunch of power lines. If you get too close to it, it there's a hum. I mean, it's like, you know, ooh, there's a party going on in there, man. And there's these tall fences that are put up around them. And there's barbed wire around the top. And there's a big sign on it that says, danger, high voltage. Well, that's what that is. That's God putting protective measures around himself saying, listen, I want to dwell among you, but that's going to be a problem. I'm not safe for you. I love you. And I can prove that love for you by all that I'm going to do to be able to be in your lives. But don't make the mistake of thinking that I'm safe for you to be around. Listen, human beings invented, captured, and stick electricity inside of wires and they travels and we get around it. Human discovery, human manipulation, and in some ways human invention to generate that electricity and we go, ooh, I respect that. I'm not climbing on the other side of that fence. I'm not touching any of that stuff. But we get around the God of the universe who just sat in his lazy boy recliner and said, let there be light, boom, and everything existed. We get around that God and we think, no need for carefulness. Really? I didn't learn that from the tabernacle. I learned that in an age of tolerance. Now let me tell you the backside. Kurt, you can go ahead and come back up. an interesting thing. One of the most sad moments in the Old Testament is Moses has led the people out of bondage on his way into the promised land. He's just been this inspirational leader. He is, he is the most revered Old Testament feature character. And he does something one day that God says, Moses, because you have done that, you won't be going into the promised land. And I read that and I go, oh, come on. You got to be kidding me. I couldn't have been that big a deal. God said, speak to the rock and it'll bring forth water. Give water to the people. Moses was a little angry that day because the people were difficult to deal with. And he struck the rock like he had before. But this time, God simply said, do it different this time. Don't strike the rock. This time you speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock. Does that seem like a small thing? God still provided water through the rock. But God turned to Moses and said, Moses, you will not be going into the promised land. Listen to this thought from John Piper. 
In Isaiah 8, verse 12, God says to Isaiah, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, don't lump God into the same group as all your other fears and dreads. Treat him as an utterly unique fear and dread. Set him apart from all the ordinary fears and dreads. When Moses distrusted God in striking the rock, rather than speaking to the rock as God had told him, he did not treat him as being in a magnificent class of power and trustworthiness by himself. He treated him as just another common person to be distrusted. What was Moses' terrible deed? He treated God as common. And God installs all this to give an impression to us. He is not common. He is not easily approached. You can't have a good day and think you've won your way into the presence of God. You can't lead a good life and decide, I'm just going to try and be a pretty good person. You don't get to go in this veil by being a good person, ever. The only way to get to God, you want a relationship with God, and I think, you know, it's a rare few human beings that don't long for a relationship with God, don't long for a sense of God is near to me. God cares about me. God is involved in my life. God sees the tears that I'm crying. He knows the hardships I'm going through. God is with me. People want that. This tabernacle is put in place to teach us something. How do you get that? How do you get there? God wants to be there. The God who wants to dwell in intimacy and closeness in each one of our lives. He doesn't just blink and say, hey, listen, don't you worry about anything you've ever done wrong. Don't worry about it. I'll just come right in. God installs the tabernacle, has it practiced for years and years and years, and has one come who was the only one who could ever open a door, who could ever rip the veil down and give us access to God. Because God does love you more than you could ever imagine. But he's high voltage. He's more than he just loves you. He's more than that. And until you come to God through Jesus Christ, there's no hope of coming to him. There's one way. There's only one who ever tore down the veil between a holy God and a needy, sinful world. It was Jesus Christ. And I know our age of tolerance says there just can't be just one way. Don't fall for the Johnny-come-lately idea. There are lots of things in this world and in our existence where there's only one way. Lots of things. And this is one of them. And happens to be the most important one. So listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're trying to get right with God, you've got this sense your life is not right with God, but you long for that. You, you want to have a sense that God is good with you. He's okay. More than okay, he's with you. He's near you. 
And that exchange of life and love is going to come into your life. You, you want to know that. Well, God built a tabernacle like the one in the heavens. So that he could dwell with you. You think you want that? God wants it more than you do. You think you want God near to you? God wants to be near to you more than you could ever want it. There's still only one way for that to happen. It's to go through the gate, through the door that Jesus Christ said, I am the door. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, listen, if you want to come to the Father this morning, all the work's already been done. That veil, Jesus has already torn that veil. You want to pass through that veil? You want to be intimate with God and know Him? Well, this morning, right now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment. You you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can enter through the one door into the presence of God. And Jesus said, you will be saved and you will go in and out and find pasture. Your life will be forever different. This God won't be some God in the sky somewhere. He will be intimately with you in your life. If you want to do that, then you pray this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads together. You speak to God and let this be your words from your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am separated from you. My life feels separated from you. It feels broken. It feels hard. It feels empty. And I do recognize I can never be good enough to come to you. I have fallen short. God, what I hear today makes sense in my heart. That you sent your son to come and live a life that was perfect and pleasing to you and then to die on a cross to pay the penalty for sin that separates me from you. So today I turn to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I confess my need for you and my sins. I receive your forgiveness. I receive all that you have done on my behalf to remove the barrier and to restore me to God. So by faith this morning, I receive you into my life, you to dwell with me, you to tabernacle among my life in me. Come into my life from this day forward. Make my life the setting you want it to be. May it be a pleasing setting to you. May it be transformed into a place that you are pleased to dwell in. Let me just pray for a moment for those of you that are here this morning you're you're experiencing fear in your life you're so concerned maybe it's fear of provision in your life how how will needs get met 
How will you supply for your family, for the future that you feel is coming? You just don't see an ability that's there that's sufficient for those needs that are just around the bend? Or maybe you are tormented in your heart just by the fear of people and who they're going to be in your life and who they're not being. How you feel like you're on the outside or maybe just paralyzing insecurities that invade how you feel on a daily basis and who you can be around and who you can't and what are people going to think? Just introduce this God behind the veil to you. In a strange way, what God told Isaiah, he tells you today. Don't fear those things. Don't let them be your dread. Fear me. That seems like a strange remedy. But if you are not more impressed, more amazed by, more blown away by this God who can supply all your needs out of nothing, who can turn circumstances into something favorable that look like they have no hope, that can be in your heart the love and acceptance that you long for, that you will not need from people around you. If that God's not great enough to be approached carefully, yet knowing he is that way, then you will continue to live in fear of everything else. The way to fix fear is to fear something more. So God, would you help those here today who walked in today afraid of things in life, afraid of the longevity of their life and the health in their life and the diagnosis they've received. God, let a greater fear come over them. A respect for the God who is over every day of our existence, who will never leave us or abandon us, who broke down barriers to get access to us so that his goodness could be in our lives. God, those who are fearful that someone's going to hurt them or someone's going to disappoint them or someone's going to leave them or they're not going to be loved or accepted. Lord, let there be an awareness that the God who gives perfect love and acceptance has broken down the barrier to bring that into our lives. Lord, let us begin to look to you. Lord, we've looked in these other places and that's what's given us this fear. God, this morning, we're looking to you. God, we want to fear you and have a more awesome sense of your power and your ability in our lives than we've ever had. So God, thank you for breaking through this veil. Thank you for all that you are to us in our lives. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so can you tell somebody about the tabernacle a little bit now? Amen. All right.